The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, October 29th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Can lab-grown brains become conscious, and should we let them? Burger King's latest creepy stunt to rile up McDonald's, and why do we say trick-or-treat, and what is mischief night anyways? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So this was a quick link on cocky.org yesterday that I wanted to expand on. Can lab-grown brains become conscious? How do scientists know if they are? And what are the ethical implications therein? So small clumps of lab-grown brains, often no larger than a sesame seed, are called brain organoids. They're grown from human stem cells and commonplace in labs that study the brain. Alison Muatri, a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Diego, published a paper last year reporting the finding that some of his team's human brain organoids had produced coordinated waves of electric activity, not unlike the kind seen in premature babies, and one of the properties of a conscious brain. The waves persisted for several months before the team ended the experiment, but the paper caused a melee of ethical considerations. Should organoids that can achieve consciousness be afforded rights that other clumps of cells don't have? Should scientists even be allowed to create organoids that can advance to a level of consciousness? Muatri's study isn't the only one raising these types of questions. Here's an appropriately Frankenstein-esque story for you, quoting Nature Research. Just a few months earlier, a team at Yale University announced that it had at least partially restored life to the brains of pigs that had been killed hours earlier. By removing the brains from the pigs' skulls and infusing them with a chemical cocktail, the researchers revived the neurons' cellular functions and their ability to transmit electrical signals. End quote. There's also been efforts to add human neurons to mouse brains, all pushing the boundaries of what some see as ethically wrong and others view as a necessary means to study and hopefully find solutions for human diseases and neurological conditions. So efforts are being made to establish guidelines surrounding human brain organoids. Earlier this year, the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine began a study to help inform the establishment of those guidelines. But a chief guiding question will be, how do you define consciousness in a measurable way? Quoting again, Physicians generally assess the level of consciousness in patients in a vegetative state on the basis of whether the person blinks or flinches in response to pain or other stimuli. Using electroencephalogram or EEG readings, for instance, researchers can also measure how the brain responds when it's zapped with an electrical pulse. A conscious brain will display much more complex, unpredictable electrical activity than one that is unconscious, which responds with simple, regular patterns. End quote. But how do you apply such tests to a non-corporeal organoid? 
A number of theories of consciousness are being considered as potential rubrics, like the integrated information theory, which says, quote, Consciousness is a product of how densely neuronal networks are connected across the brain. The more neurons that interact with one another, the higher the degree of consciousness, a quantity known as phi. If the phi is greater than zero, the organism is considered conscious. Most animals reach this bar, according to the theory, end quote. And then quoting along further, other competing theories of consciousness require sensory input or coordinated electrical patterns across multiple brain regions. An idea known as global workspace theory, for instance, posits that the brain's prefrontal cortex functions as a computer, processing sensory inputs and interpreting them to form a sense of being. Because organoids don't have a prefrontal cortex and can't receive input, they cannot become conscious. Without input and output, the neurons may be talking with each other, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything like human thought, says Madeline Lancaster, a developmental biologist at the University of Cambridge, end quote. And even though connecting organoids to organs and even coaxing them to develop other brain functions like light sensitivity is possible, Lancaster and Harvard molecular biologist Paolo Arlotta note that there's a difference between being able to sense or process information and simply having the, quote, necessary circuits to do so, end quote. You're more likely to find consciousness in experiments like the revitalized pig brains than with organoids that lack anatomical structure. Still, in that experiment, care was taken to avoid developing consciousness. Their goal was revitalizing organs, not raising the dead. And they actually stopped the experiment when they detected possible coordinated EEG activity indicating consciousness. It turns out, according to a neurology specialist, that the activity was not consistent with consciousness, but they anesthetized the brains nonetheless just to be safe. And again, it comes back to how do you define consciousness? What does it really mean in an organoid? And since most scientists agree these experiments shouldn't be halted completely, what guidelines should be put in place? Various boards across the world are grappling with these questions. Some proposed requirements would include obtaining consent before using a person's stem cells for brain organoid development, and how to study and dispose of organoids humanely, and employing restrictions and requiring justifications from scientists who wish to pursue this study. It is a strange new world, but scientists are hopeful that continuing in this direction could lead to major breakthroughs in many conditions that we understand very little about. The restrooms of a few Burger Kings in Scandinavia might be the scariest places on Earth right now. And I'm not saying that for any hygiene-related reasons. I'm sure Scandinavian public restrooms are rather well looked after. No, it's because of Burger King's latest PR stunt against McDonald's. Burger King said in a statement, quote, a few years ago, a particular clown got abruptly canceled from his long-standing job at a certain hamburger chain, but this Halloween, he's back at Burger King restrooms, end quote. So to back up, remember that string of creepy clown sightings back in 2016? If you forgot, it's understandable. They ramped up in the lead-up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and, well, we were all a bit distracted after that. But during the height of the creepy clown scare, McDonald's decided it was time to retire Ronald McDonald, at least for a little bit. That's the reason that they gave publicly, anyway. 
Privately, I wonder if they saw a declining popularity with him, given the general declining interest kids have in clowns. I was listening to the You're Wrong About podcast recently, one that Jason recommended on Kotke not too long ago, and they cited a 2008 study in which researchers invited young children to help them redecorate the kids' wing of a hospital, and every single child in the study voted no clowns. So yeah, clowns aren't quite in vogue with the kids these days. Clowns as an emblem of total horror, however, send in the, well, clowns. So Burger King has launched a campaign in Denmark and Sweden in which you can go into one of their restrooms, look in the mirror, and say, Cancelled Clown, three times, a la Bloody Mary, and it will cause the lights to dim, some sound effects to play, and Ronald McDonald himself will appear in the mirror. The trick is executed by the use of a two-way mirror and voice recognition software installed by Ingo Stockholm. For anyone who doesn't live in Sweden or Denmark, however, some friends of mine maintain a haunted bathroom inside their art shop in Lawrence, Kansas, which was voted the second best bathroom in Lawrence and has its own originally composed soundtrack. And since lockdown started, part of the spooky experience was made available online in what the owners call the world's first virtual haunted bathroom. You can go on the virtual tour at the link in the show notes, if you dare. Tomorrow, October 30th, is Mischief Night, or Devil's Night, or especially these days, some folks might simply call it Halloween Eve, and apparently, if you're from Cincinnati or some parts of New England, it's Cabbage Night. What is this night, actually? Why does it have all these different names? Well, I know for me, growing up in Texas, this was the night that teenagers would get up to a lot of hijinks. My dad was always more worried about me being out late on the night before Halloween than the evening itself. And it wasn't unusual to wake up on the morning of Halloween and see smashed pumpkins lining the streets, at the very least. The first mentions of Mischief Night on record date back to 1790 in the United Kingdom, but those instances and subsequent ones throughout the next century, while concurrent in their execution as an evening for gangs of youths to commit pranks and low-key crimes, actually occurred either the day before May Day or sometimes the day before Guy Fawkes Day on November 5th. There isn't mention of Mischief Night in conjunction with Halloween until the 1930s and 40s in the United States. This incarnation included, quoting Time, celebrants apparently hoping to separate the wholesome ritual of dressing up and collecting candy from the custom of causing mayhem. Some argue that tensions arising from the Great Depression, Black Tuesday was right before Halloween on October 29th in 1929, and the threat of war encouraged both the trend of vandalism and the separate desire for a more lighthearted tradition. End quote. But the association of Halloween with havoc-making goes back much further than that, and ties into how we got the tradition of trick-or-treating. So All Hallows' Eve in Ireland and Scotland in the 18th and 19th centuries was a time when young boys, especially, would play pranks on neighbors, stuffing cabbage into keyholes to stink up a person's house while they were out, and carving scary faces into turnips, a callback to the legend of Stingy Jack and the origins of our modern-day jack-o'-lanterns. When many Scots and Irish families immigrated to the U.S., they kept their traditions up, and the mischief only grew over the years. 
But there was another element at play as well, at least in New York City. Not on Halloween, but closer to Thanksgiving, it was typical in the early 20th century for kids, especially poor and working-class kids, to don costumes and perform in the streets or door-to-door in order to elicit offerings of food and sweets. And sometimes if shopkeepers or homeowners didn't deliver, the kids would bang down the door or start breaking things until they got paid. This tradition started dying out in the mid to late 1920s, partially because people got tired of it and started campaigns in the schools to tamp it down, but also because the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade began in 1924, and it was such a spectacle that even the best child street performer couldn't compete against it. So the kids moved their antics up to Halloween. And as the Great Depression began, pressures to get treats of food or pennies was mounting. With all the various forces at play, by the mid-30s, Halloween was becoming close to a junior purge night. According to my favorite Halloween history book, Halloween, The History of America's Darkest Holiday by David J. Skull, incidents from the Halloweens of 1932 to 1934 included slashing tires and throwing rocks at cars, one car was pushed off a 50-foot embankment in Riverside Park, a dummy being dropped onto the tracks of a New Haven railroad train, hundreds of broken windows and street lamps, and melees across the East Coast escalated to the point that a 14-year-old boy was beaten to death by a mob in Connecticut. Desperate for a solution, schools, civic groups, and community members started offering pranksters warm meals and small treats at their homes on Halloween if they promised not to get up to mischief. And this sort of relates back to traditions across many different cultures relating to versions of All Souls Day, typically celebrated on November 2nd, when some people would go door-to-door offering prayers for the dead in exchange for food. And not too surprisingly, since a lot of the destruction was often a form of class unrest by hungry kids, over time, this strategy really worked. And it would form the basis for trick-or-treating as we know it today in the U.S. Now, how that relates back to Mischief Night? Well, you can't stamp it all out with kindness, and as Time pointed out, the Mischief Makers wanted a distinction between the now-sanitized holiday and their evening of mayhem. It really did die down after the early 90s, at least here in the States, but it's worth keeping an eye out tomorrow night for any pranksters. And hey, maybe see if you can de-escalate the situation with a peace offering of a Snickers bar. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go spend some time thinking about what it is really that makes me conscious of being conscious. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.